Well, uh, Peter did do a uh, brief recap of where we've been so far. Uh, Let me fill in the gaps, though. Uh, We finished in Genesis 3 last week, and we pick up in Genesis 12 this week. We're actually going to be covering Genesis 12 to 22 this week, uh, so fair ground to cover there. But in between Genesis 3 and uh, Genesis 12, uh, quite a lot happens. Cain and Abel, Noah and Babel, Sounds like a kid's nursery rhyme, doesn't it, when you say it like that? Uh, But, of course, it's uh, not a pretty story uh, that unfolds as uh, sin takes hold in the world. Uh, We have all sorts of uh, degradation occur to the point where just before uh, God decides to send the flood on the world, his announcement, his pronouncement on mankind is that uh, every inclination of of men's hearts was only evil all the time. It's very encompassing, isn't it? Every inclination of men's hearts, only evil all the time. And uh, it was that evil in men's hearts that led God to uh, decide to essentially wipe out all life on earth. But because of his commitment to his promises... Uh, his commitment to his plan that he would always have a people dwelling in his place under his rule and blessing, he preserved a remnant, uh, Noah and his family, as we know, and, of course, the animals uh, with them on the ark. But that didn't fix things. Uh, From there, uh, things continued to slide, uh, and uh, they ended in the situation where on the plains of Shinar, Uh, men gathered together and they decided that they would make a tower that reached to the heavens and in doing so make a name for themselves. And the inference is clear uh, that they would climb to heaven, that they would seek God's throne, they would overtake him. Now, of course, they couldn't actually do that, but if that was their intent, if that's what was going on in their heart, uh, then we can see the evil uh, that still lived there in people's hearts. And so uh, at Babel, uh, we know that God confused all the the languages of the people so that they could no longer collaborate in such an attempt, and they were scattered uh, across the earth. And so all through here, we see that sin and judgment continue to occur in a pattern, another pattern, uh, almost a cycle, really. And you start to wonder if there's any way out. Is it just going to be this continuing story of sin and judgment, sin and judgment? There are little clues along the way that God will never give up, that in each instance God actually shows mercy to those who he judges. So he puts the mark on Cain that protects him from uh, other people who might, choose, who might want to kill him. Uh, he rescues Noah and his family rather than judging everybody. Uh, and... And yet at Babel, we wonder, is there any hope? Is there any mercy that God displays? And the answer to that question uh, is in the story that we uh, have begun to read this morning, the story of Abram. Uh, This is where we see God's mercy, and not just mercy to Abram, but the beginning of the next phase, really, of God's plan, of how God is going to bring blessing, of how God is going to reverse the curse and bring blessing back into the world. And God's plan to do that involves three crucial ingredients. Do you remember, I think it was about 10 years ago, maybe it's 15 years ago now, those recipe books, three ingredients that came out? 
They were real fad at the time. Um, I, I would have thought people like you would remember this, George. I, I'm sorry, that's, that's casting aspersions. But, um, you know, those of us who aren't so great in the kitchen, three ingredients, awesome, I could do that. Um, it sounded like such a good idea at the time, but the reality is that with three ingredients, <laughs> anything you make is going to taste pretty ordinary, isn't it? <laughs> um, so the, that recipe book wasn't that great, but God's recipe turns out to be very, uh, very tasty. Uh, God's, uh, and the three ingredients are God's promise, uh, in this story, Abraham's faith, or Abram's faith, and God's grace. So promise, faith, and grace are the three ingredients that God combines to create something wonderful. So uh, let's see how he, does, how he does it. First of all, we need to understand that God's choice of Abram is an unlikely choice. That is, that there's not anything particularly marvellous or wonderful or special about Abram that would make God choose him. Uh, So have a look from verse 12, and we'll read uh, what God does in choosing Abram. Sorry, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And here's God's promise. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Massive promises, aren't they? God brings this beautiful word of blessing back and repeats it again and again, but it won't only be Abram who is blessed, but it will be all those who bless Abram, and in the end it will be all the peoples of the earth who are blessed somehow through God blessing Abram. So here Abram stands at the beginning of God's plan to turn things around again, to reverse the curse and bring blessing back to the world. Now, when you think about it, God could have chosen anyone at the time, They could have chosen one of Abram's brothers. Perhaps he could have chosen Lot. And there are any number number of other people who were descendants of uh, other lines as we read back uh, through the genealogies. Why Abram? I don't think there's really any reason that God would choose Abram, and that's kind of the point. It's kind of the point that it wasn't something about Abram, but that it was simply God's choice. God's sovereign choice, plain and simple. But actually there is a reason that God chooses Abram and we see it in verse 30 of chapter 11 where we read that Abram's wife Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. See, I think that's actually a big part of the reason why God chose Abram. God chose Abram to be the father of great nations because his wife had no children and was unable to conceive. Now, to you and I, that might, make, that might sound very backwards. Surely that would be the last person that you would choose for such a promise. But in choosing Abram and in choosing Sarai, God was showing that this was going to be his work, that he would be the one who would fulfil his promise and not any other way. God wants to make clear that he is the one who has done it. See, this story isn't just history taking its course. This is the story of God setting the course of history. 
And from this point on, God's people would be God's people not because they chose him, but because he chose them. And that's very important for us to remember. God is the one who gathers his people. His people don't work their way to him. That's kind of what happened on Shinar at the Tower of Babel, people trying to work their way to God. That's not the way of it. With God, he chooses who will be among his people. He chooses where the blessing will flow. But that's not to say that Abram had no choice to make. Just because God chose first didn't mean that Abram had no choice to make at all. God's decision to make Abram the focus of his promise and blessing isn't the only unlikely choice you see at this crucial moment of the story. I think there's actually a second unlikely choice, perhaps even more unlikely in a way, and that's Abram's decision to trust God and believe the promises that God had made in spite of everything. See, Abram knew very well his predicament. He'd lived with it for many years. He was resigned to the fact that he would pass his inheritance on to somebody who was not his son. But in spite of everything, when Abram heard the promise of God, he met it with faith. He believed. In the first instance, we see his faith expressed in obedience. We see that he does what God tells him to do. He ups and he leaves. In chapter 12, verse 4, so Abram went. It's that simple. God said, go. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. But time passed, and ten years later, or thereabouts, there was still no baby. And if you think about the nature of these promises, that meant there was still no progress, really. I mean, Abram had done what God had told him to do, but ten years later, and if anything, surely Abram was now further from this promise being fulfilled because he was older and his wife was older and it became apparently less and less likely that God was going to keep his promises. And so, in the second passage that we read, in chapter 15, God reassures Abram. God says in verse 1, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram points out the problem to God. Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, you have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. See, Abram understands something crucial about God's promises, and that is that everything hangs on the child of the promise. If God doesn't give Abram a child, then none of the rest of it can happen. So God takes Abram outside. It's night time. He says, Abram, look up. What do you see? I see millions of stars, millions and millions of stars. And he would have, much better than we see them today. And God said, so shall your offspring be. And then Abram does something amazing. Abram believed the Lord. Verse 6, Abram believed the Lord. It would have been very hard for Abram to believe the Lord, I mean, God's promise actually gets bigger and bigger, doesn't it? 
the stars in the sky. That's how big your family is going to be, Abram. Abram's living in this old fading body and he looks at his wife sagging next to him and thinks, really? But no, he doesn't think really. He thinks, you can do it, God. I mean, if you made the stars out of nothing, God, well, you can bring a baby out of nothing as well. I assume that was Abram's reasoning. And he believed. He had faith. He trusted God's word. Which is the second key ingredient in God's working. First, he makes his promise. God promises with his word. And he asks us to trust, to have faith. And Abram, in spite of everything, does. Now, why do you think faith is such a crucial ingredient in God's dealings with us, in God's dealings with mankind? I think there's at least a couple of reasons. Firstly, because faith conforms to the reality of who God is and who we are. What I mean by that is that God is the creator and we are dependent creatures That's the reality. That is the fundamental reality of our being and of our relationship with God. He is the creator and we are dependent on him for life. Faith is how we express our dependence on God. Faith is saying only you, God, only through you. We express our dependence on him to do what only he can do and what he has promised to do. And so notice that connection. See, faith isn't in nothing. Faith isn't in our ideas or our wishful thinking, what we would like from God or what we would like God to do or who we would like God to be for us. Faith must be tied to the promises of God. Faith must be tied to what God has revealed. Otherwise, it's not actually trust in God, is it? It's just wishful thinking. And faith is not wishful thinking. It is hearing the word of God and believing that he will be true to his word. So I think that's the first reason why faith is such a crucial ingredient, because it expresses the reality of our dependence on God and that he makes and keeps his promises. Secondly, I think it's because faith is actually the prerequisite of righteousness. See, God isn't primarily concerned with what we do because he knows that that will flow from faith. God is always concerned with the heart, you see, which is the seed of faith, rather than the outward action. In the garden, Adam and Eve chose to trust the serpent instead of God, and it was their lack of faith that led to them eating. They believed the serpent instead of God, so they took the fruit. But Abram chooses to trust God rather than give in to the temptation to disbelieve because of his circumstances. See, trust leads to obedience. So that's the first two ingredients, God's promise and the response of faith. But there is a third ingredient without which the others wouldn't really amount to much in the end, and that is grace. See, God made his promise, an unlikely choice in choosing Abram, 
Abram made his unlikely choice to trust God in spite of his circumstances. And then on top of all this, God did something even more amazing. And that is God credited Abram's faith to him as righteousness. Have a, have a close look at that. It is such a crucial verse in the Bible. Abram believed the Lord and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. That is, he, he reckoned it as righteousness. He treated Abram's faith as though it were righteousness. The crucial thing to understand is that Abram's faith was not righteousness. That is, Abram, Abram didn't become righteous in that act. But God accepted Abram's faith as if it were righteousness. And that, friends, we call grace. The combination of God's unlikely choice of Abram and Abram's unlikely choice to trust God results in the unlikely equation of grace. That all Abram did was believe. In essence, believing is nothing. Believing is not achieving something. It's not doing anything. Believing is accepting that God will do and that God has done what he promises he will do. That is all that faith is. But God in his grace chooses to accept that simple acceptance as righteousness. This equation where God accepts faith in the place of righteousness becomes a central element of God's relationship with his people from this point forward. God doesn't change the way that he works. God doesn't start demanding righteousness from people. All he ever wants, all he ever asks is faith. That's all he wants from you. Listen to the promises he makes and trust that he will keep them. Put your trust in God and you will be saved. Put your trust in God and you will be in a right relationship with him. And that is all that he ever asks. So that acceptance of Abram's faith as righteousness is the first glimpse of grace in the passage, but there are two more. The second glimpse of grace is seen in that ominous ceremony that we read of in the second half of chapter 15. In verse 7, God restates his promise that he will give Abram and his descendants a land to call home. And again, Abram can't see how this is possible It's not doubt so much. He does call God sovereign Lord. He just doesn't understand. How? And how will I know? Again, uh, yeah, so he asks how uh, that's going to be achieved, especially given that the land is already occupied. And in answer, God uh, celebrates or or, uh, conducts this ceremony Now, this is a ceremony the kind of which uh, would have been fairly common at the time, an agreement made between two parties. Uh, And the way that it would work is, as happens here, uh, they would would each bring uh, animals uh, to be slaughtered and those animals would be cut in two pieces and set aside to make an aisle. And what would normally happen is that the two people who were being joined by this agreement, would then process up and down between the halves of the animals. And essentially, uh, in doing so, they were saying, if we fail 
So they're taking responsibility for the agreement. And they're saying if we fail to keep up our part of the bargain, then what has happened to these animals, so may it happen to us. That's what this ceremony is about. It's pretty brutal, isn't it? Yeah, it's really putting your money where your mouth is. What's different about this ceremony, though, is that all Abram does is sits and watches. There's only one person who moves between the two pieces, and it's God, represented here by this smoking fire pot and blazing torch. See, God is the only one who traverses this difficult terrain. God makes this promise, and he says, if I fail, if I fail, then so may it be to me. If there is to be a cost to pay for this agreement, God says, I will pay. I will pay the cost. So you can be sure, Abram, because it doesn't hang on you. You can be sure you will have this land because I'm the one who will make sure that it will happen and I'm putting my money where my mouth is. Isn't that gracious of God to choose to take that on himself? This is a one-sided covenant. Now, it was another 15 years before God finally came good on his promise to give Abram and Sarai a child, by which time Sarai was 90 years old, Abram a cool hundred. Well, I don't know if he was that cool, actually, but (laughs) around hundred. God gave them a son, and he was called Isaac, which means laughter a name that acknowledges both his parents' initial scepticism that God would or perhaps even could keep this promise, but also their joy when he did keep his promise. It's a good name, isn't it, Isaac, for this son of the promise? But the testing of Abram's faith actually didn't end with Isaac's birth. I said earlier that God's choice of Abram and Sarai was about demonstrating his sovereign choice. It wasn't something about them that he was revealing. It was something about himself. Well, I think that it also served another purpose. To encourage... uh, Sorry, I think God's testing also served another purpose, which was to encourage the kind of faith that only comes from experiencing God doing the impossible. See, later on, uh, when Isaac was probably a teenager, we read a story in Genesis chapter 22, uh, which is a terrifying story. It's the story of how God once again tested Abram's faith. Chapter 22, verse 1, Sometime later God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, that's Isaac, your only son, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Imagine having that command come to you. But again, Abraham, after having to sleep on it, and I doubt that he would have got much sleep that night, got up the next morning And he did what the Lord had said. He loaded up his donkey, 
took a couple of servants and he took his son Isaac. And off they went to cut some wood for the fire and set up for the place that God had told him about. Three days later, what a journey that must have been, making the most of the time with his son. He said to the servants, you stay here and we're going to worship and then we'll come back. And Abraham took the wood and he placed it on his son, Isaac. And he carried the fire and the knife and the two of them went on up the hill together. And Isaac spoke up and he said, Father, yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And they reached the place that God had told him about, and Abram built an altar and he ranged the wood on it, and he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. He reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But then the word of the Lord came again. And he stopped him. The angel of the Lord called out, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. It's a disturbing chapter. It's a disturbing story, isn't it? I think it raises two huge questions for us. Firstly, how could God ask this of Abraham? And secondly, how could Abraham be willing to do it? But I think this is where we need to understand that though this was a test, it wasn't just a test. If it was just a test, I think that would be cruel. But I think that through this test, God is revealing himself and his plan more clearly, both to Abraham and ultimately to us. See, I think in this episode, Abraham learned that God's gracious choice to accept his faith as righteousness didn't mean that sin could just be forgotten or swept under the carpet. As God had made clear from the very beginning the wages of sin is death. Don't eat from the tree because if you do, you'll die. If you disobey me, you will die. Unrighteousness brings death. But Abraham also learned that God's grace in regard to dealing with sin extended to providing the necessary sacrifice. See, that's what Abraham learnt through this exercise, that God did provide, that God... His confidence in God to provide uh, was proved, tr- proved right. In Hebrews 11, Abraham, we read, trusting in God's promise that his offspring would be reckoned through Isaac. Remember, that was the first word that came to Abraham. He was willing to go through with the sacrifice of his son because he reasoned that God must be able to raise the dead. See, It was Abraham's faith in God's promise that enabled him to obey. He trusted God. He didn't know how God would do it. He reasoned that if he had to go through with this sacrifice, then God would be able to work even beyond that. If Isaac was to be the heir of the uh, sorry, to be the uh, 
through the one through whom the blessing would flow, then that would mean that um, that Abraham could trust even beyond death. But Abraham wasn't the only one who had his faith in God's grace strengthened through that ordeal. See, as you and I look back from this side of the cross, Abraham's near sacrifice of the son he loved, his only son, the child of the promise, it gives us a deeper sense of what God went through, what he went through with on the cross. What Abraham was willing to do, God did do. Just as Abraham led his son up the hill, so God led his son up the hill. In fact, it's possible it was the same hill. Moriah, this region where this occurred, is the name of the mountain that Jerusalem is on. Mount Moriah. It's where the sacrifice, it's where the temple was built and the sacrifices were made. It's where the final sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, was made. Just as Isaac carried a burden of wood up the hill, so the Son of God carried his own burden of wood up the hill. Just as Isaac was somehow able to trust his father through all of this, so Jesus was able to trust his father. But again, there is a crucial difference between what happens with Abraham and Isaac and between what happens and what happens with God and Christ. And that is, there is no scapegoat when it comes to Jesus. In keeping his promises to bring blessing to all people, to reverse the curse and to crush the head of the serpent, God the Father gave up his beloved son, his only son. It's true what Abraham discovered on the mountain of the Lord, God provided. On the mountain of the Lord, God provided for you and for me. On the mountain of the Lord, God kept the bargain that he made with Abraham. He was the one who would pay the price for his promise to be kept. 